Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute, hosted by Georgina Downer. Hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm joined by the Robert Menzies Institute's academic coordinator, Dr. Zachary Gorman, who is knowledgeable about all things Robert Menzies, Australian liberalism, and particularly that early Federation era history. So it's absolute delight to have Zach working here and we have lots of fantastic discussions particularly about the topic we're going to speak about today Zach the founding of the Liberal Party of Australia of which Robert Menzies was one of the principal architects yeah that's quite a loaded title whether or not he's the founder of the Liberal Party yes it is a contested space as they say but I thought we might begin our discussion today, Zach, not with the Liberal Party of Australia, but with Australian liberalism as it is, as a political tradition. It didn't just start in the 1940s, it didn't start in 1901 at Federation. It was a tradition that has a significant history, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm very insistent on this, that the Labor Party is quite proud of its history, which is obviously traced back to the 1890s and the Great Maritime Strike. And the Liberal Party doesn't have that historical continuity. But I'm adamant that liberalism is our oldest political tradition. I think David Kemp's books do a great job of documenting that. Even before we had democracy in Australia, we had a lot of political campaigns that were liberal-inspired. Things like insuring ex-convicts, got equal rights, the introduction of trial by jury, all these sorts of things, such by the time you did get fully-fledged democracy in Australia in 1856, virtually every politician was calling themselves liberal. I find that really interesting that you didn't label yourself a conservative as they were doing in the United Kingdom where so many Australian settlers were coming from, that they wanted to be called liberals. And so there was an attachment to these types of enlightenment ideas and that they were being reinterpreted in Australia in a very uniquely Australian way, given the context of the settlement and society at the time. Yeah, well, Australia was a really unique liberal experiment in many ways. Obviously, a lot of the ideas that were being extrapolated on in Australia were British and European in origin, liberalism itself. But in Europe and in England, they had to go up against an entrenched aristocracy. They had to go up against a legally enshrined Church of England, all these sorts of things. But in Australia, you could implement liberalism from scratch. You didn't have to redistribute wealth of the wealthy. You just could create a level playing field with low taxes and lots of opportunity and see who made their ways to the top. And that's what you had in these colonial parliaments. You had all these sort of self-made men who had really seized the opportunities of a new land. Joseph Carruthers, who I did my PhD thesis on, for example, he was the son of a convict. He didn't know it. It was a big family secret. There was still some shame around it. But these were the sort of people that were getting into Parliament. But even the non-convict New Australians who came in the 19th century they were pretty humble people, weren't they? I think of my forebears, Henry Downer, for example, He was a tailor from Portsmouth. He was of no particular consequence, but I understand he was having a bit of a tough time of it in Portsmouth, and so why not come to the colony of South Australia and he set up a shop in Hindley Street in Adelaide. (laughs) Yeah, well, you you didn't really come to Australia if you were particularly successful in England. It wasn't looked upon as some way that was desirable in the way it is certainly now that there's plenty of immigrants that come out from England wanting to change the beach and these sorts of things. I think the classic example is Darcy Wentworth, the father of William Wentworth, who was from an aristocratic family, but just kept getting accused of highway robbery and all these (laughs) sorts of crimes. And eventually they said to him, essentially, we don't want to convict you because you are from this nice family. But we can't have you here committing crimes anymore. So they gave him a government job and shipped him off to Australia. And on the boat, he impregnated a convict and thence was born one of Australia's most important political figures. (laughs) It's amazing happenstance. So we've got this tradition of liberalism, many public figures and politicians in the 19th century calling themselves liberals. 
And as you said, there's a Labor Party that has an extremely long history right into the 19th century. But what was happening on the centre-right for these Liberals in terms of political organisation? Yeah, well, there were a couple of sort of main policies I think it's worth mentioning that were implemented in the 19th century as sort of signature Liberal achievements. One was universal education and the other was the Land Acts, which are sort of the forerunner of this Australian idea of owning your own home. So that forgotten people putting the home front and centre, that was built into this liberal character. But because liberalism was so unchallenged, you didn't really need formalised parties in a way. In New South Wales, you had what was known as the faction system. So Henry Parks and these major political figures would just have their own personal following. They might provide a road or a bridge to a certain member to get a vote in Parliament. They didn't really have these formalised parties and it's only really with the rise of the fiscal issue, so this debate over tariffs and whether Australia should be a free trade country or whether it should be a protectionist country, that's when the Liberals start to divide and create the first formalised parties in the late 1880s. And we have, of course, by the time of Federation and at that first federal election, your favourite, George Reid, his free trade party and they faced off against Edmund Barton's protectionists. So they're both non-Labor parties, but they're contesting seats against each other. And of course, back then it was first past the post. So if you had two parties of the centre-right competing against each other, who ends up benefiting will probably the party of the left, the Labor Party. Yes, certainly. And Labor really built its base from that early on. So at the first federal election in 1901, the fiscal parties were the major parties. So the government was Edmund Barton and the protectionists and the formal opposition was George Reid and the free traders. So they were major players. Again, that speaks to the fact that liberalism had been so dominant, that it really, it went uncontested and they were squabbling amongst themselves. And it's only with the rise of the Labor Party, which achieves office for the first time federally for a short-lived period in 1904, The next year in 1905, it adopts the first version of the socialist objective. And it's these events that really make the liberals get their house in order and start to have to defend their turf. And I've always said that that's a real reason why there is a decent amount of crossover between conservatism and liberalism in Australia, because liberalism had been so successful by the end of the 19th century, that what you were protecting, your instinct to conserve, was to conserve a liberal order. It was protecting what had already been established by these earlier liberals. So you have a Labor Party that is outwardly pursuing a socialist objective. Their base was, of course, the trade union movement. What was the base of the support of the protectionists and the free traders? Was it the small business people, people on the land? Yeah, well, I would say that obviously there were sort of manufacturing interests that had vested interest in pursuing protectionism, but that's not where you get a broad-based successful political party. That's not where you get your political dominance from. You get that from things like small business and just sheer amount of property owners that you have in Australia. And Menzies' uncle and political mentor, Sidney Sampson, who's a federal politician, and in this exact era, he's elected into federal politics in 1906. He argued that the best preventative to socialism was to ensure that at least 50% of Australians were landed freeholders. And that sort of holds true that Australia had always had this great distribution of wealth, this great social mobility, that opposition to these socialist ideas was pretty widespread because they were sort of an anathema in Australia. That's what people like Liberal Prime Minister Joseph Cook kept pointing out, that he had been in the mines in England. He had been in the mines since he was nine years old. And he'd gone through all the real entrenched poverty and all the rest of it. And he came to Australia and ultimately turned into a liberal politician because he argued that you don't import that ideology, that class warfare and all those issues into Australia because they're not necessary here. They're foreign to us. Yeah, and they're of no real benefit either. I mean, who does class warfare benefit ultimately? So there was no real compelling reason to import that into this new country, this new political and democratic experiment if it wasn't going to be for any benefit. So you mentioned Joseph Cook. So he is obviously an incredibly important figure. He is the first 
Prime Minister elected under the banner of the Fuse Liberal Party where the George Reid Free Traders and the Edmund Barton, subsequently Alfred Deacon, isn't it? Protectionists come together. They say we've got to unite in our loathing and fight against socialism and the Labor Party into this Liberal banner. So it's interesting they're adopting even in 1910 the Liberal moniker. Yeah, well, even in 1901, it was the liberal protectionists versus the liberal free traders. They always describe themselves as liberal. And I very much think that sort of political divide where it is a liberal centre-right party defending a successful status quo versus the Labour collectivists, that's what establishes itself in Australia with the fusion of the two liberal parties but then being cemented by first Labour's election victory in 1910 and then the Liberal election victory in 1913, it really did look, when the First World War hit, like Australia politics had settled itself into natural fault lines. Yeah, and again, it's worth reflecting that there's no mainstream branding of conservatism or conservative party. It was a uniquely Australian political tradition that was quite divorced from what was going on in the UK. And I think, especially when you consider Federation just happened in 1901, you'd think there would have been a lot more borrowing from the UK and the British Parliament of their traditions that actually what was going on in Australia was unique to this country. Yeah, two things. There's certainly a great deal of influence from Gladstonian liberalism, that a lot of what Australian liberalism was, was modelled off of things that were happening in England, but the context was so different because you were fighting against all this entrenched privilege. It just, the battles themselves, even though some of the ideas and a lot of our streets will be named Gladstone, but the battles were just completely incomparable and it became a real term of derision in Australian politics to call someone a conservative. And for a long time, people like George Reid were mislabeled conservative because so much of the history had been written by their opponents like Alfred Deakin that they really wanted to pin on them the fact that they were conservative, even though George Reid had led probably the most successful reforming liberal government in New South Wales political history to this day. Well, your critics are always going to label you sort of the most loathsome of identities, aren't they? So if you're on the left, you'll always call someone who you criticise someone far right or extremist or a, a Nazi or something because you're trying to portray this demonic other. But what happens, of course, and you just alluded to it before, is World War I. And again, we have a challenge with World War II where politically Australia goes through an evolution. So you have the rise in World War I of the nationalists where the country is absolutely focused on winning the war and the effort in the Great War. And obviously so many Australian soldiers go over to Europe to fight and so many lose their lives. So this idea that these two parties that were emerging, Labor Party and the Liberals, that sort of sense of a two-party system falls apart with the rise of the Nationalist Party in this period, really with this sole focus of winning the war. Yeah, so the Liberal Party essentially sacrifices itself. It falls on its sword because the Labor Party split over conscription and William Morris Hughes and his immediate supporters are ousted from the Labour Party for their support for conscription. And the Liberal Party swallows its pride and says that we really want to win this war because for Liberals, the way they understood the world at the time, the way they envisaged themselves as a part of the empire, all this stuff, World War I was a war for survival. It may not look like it looking back from 2023, but that's what it felt like to the people that were making the decisions at the time. And they ultimately sacrificed their entire political movement that had this history that was over a century old and had only just sort of been formalised and all the rest of it. They decided to sacrifice that to keep William Morris Hughes as Prime Minister in order to ensure that we had this unity and continuity in governments that could really see us through the war successfully. So, Robert Menzies is coming onto the scene in the 1920s. He'd been born in Parrot in western part of Victoria to a very humble family. His father was a shopkeeper. And as you say, his uncle's a quite a significant politician in his own right. And his father ends up becoming a state MP as well. So it is a political family, but it's a humble family. 
So he's getting into politics and he joins the nationalists, but he doesn't rate them, does he? (laughs) I mean, he's obviously not Labor, despite his mother's side having Labor connections and affiliations. Well, I think it's an interesting thing about Menzies is that Menzies could see that there was all this sordid vested interest on the centre-right of politics at the time. A lot of it, particularly in Melbourne, and this is my New South Wales bias coming out, but a lot of it was tied to the fact that you had this protectionist system where all these big manufacturers were entirely reliant on the government to prop them up and put them in position that they were in. So this bred a certain toxic politics, but that toxic politics was further facilitated by the fact that in the 1920s, the Liberal Party had died. So you didn't have this clear philosophical direction anymore. And Menzies sets up this organisation known as the Young Nationalists, which was all about getting sort of young people into politics, but it was also about injecting ideas and vigorous debate back into politics because Menzies could see that it really just wasn't going on. One of the first things that happens to him when he enters Victorian politics is that he gets promoted into the ministry and finds the ministry doing all sort of deals with the country party to stay in power because particularly it's a weird thing about the Victorian country party is that the Victorian country party was a lot closer to Labor than just about any other country party in the country. It even borrowed Labor methods in having a caucus pledge and all these sorts of things. So winning over the country party was no guarantee for the nationalists in the 1920s. You really had to buy them and Menzies hated that. He was disgusted by He ended up resigning on a matter of principle, didn't he, over some kickback deal that the country party was trying to do with a business. (laughs) Either an abattoir or a meat refrigerating company. I think the two roles were very combined, so it depends how they want to describe it. Yeah, yeah. But something that struck me about Menzies' group, the Young Nationalists, was his commitment to a politics of principle, which he writes about, he speaks about. And this is something he carries through with him for the rest of his political life, or no doubt, no doubt, his whole life, that he really thinks that politics shouldn't be about the here and now, the issues of the day, that there should be principles that shape what you do, and you should be consistent in those principles. And he is carrying that through with him, that idea of a politics of principle from the state parliament into the federal parliament when he gets elected member for Kuyong. And we have some hope, don't we, <laughs> with this idea of a politics of principle, but stymied once again. Well, it reads back into why Menzies has entered politics in the first place, that Menzies actually answers politics at a great financial sacrifice to himself. He would have made far more money at the bar. He really does enter politics out of this sense of public duty and trying to enact a sort of public service. So having such a clear idea of why he entered politics, he's not there to muck around. He's not there to get kickbacks. He really wants to have a clearly defined set of principles that he's then able to enact. He's a real, really clear sort of thinker. And he's involved in the next phase of this evolution of the centre-right, which, like the formation of the nationalists, at the time of the events actually happening, it is quite a sort of principled stand that you have the nationalists then sacrifice themselves again in the name of unity during the Great Depression. They accept another Labour leader in Joseph Lyons. Joseph Lyons arguably is a better fit for a centre-right leader than William Morris Hughes ever was. And he's certainly been more adopted into the Liberal canon than Billy Hughes is. Billy Hughes is very much politically homeless in Australian historiography. Yes, no one wants to own him. (laughs) Historiography. And the point is to unite the nation in this time of crisis based on paying back our debts and having this fiscal conservatism, very much upholding middle-class values of frugality and honour, it would be absolutely unthinkable that even in this hour of great need like the Great Depression that Australia would not pay back our debts. But it's not just a matter of principle. If you don't pay back your debts, if you pursue repudiation like New South Wales Premier Jack Lang was advocating at the time, then your whole economy is going to break down. You've got no property rights, your ability to negotiate in an international market for any further lending, anything else, it's just gone. So it really was a really important moment in Australian political history and it's one where the better angels of our nature shone through. 
And this is where we have the formation of the United Australia Party, as you were alluding to. So, so we go from the Nationalists through to the United Australia Party and it's the party that Menzies is part of and, of course, bringing Joe Lyons, who'd been Labor, the UAP fold, he then becomes Prime Minister. But again, I mean, with the drums of war beating, this is where Menzies again starts to see the issues around a party that doesn't exactly have the framework to devote itself to a politics of principle. Yes, the UAP had a clear raison d'etre when it was formed. It was to get Australia through the Great Depression. And it did that really well. There's lots of arguments about the economics of the Great Depression. And of course, a lot of people focus on FDR's New Deal. But Australia's opposite approach, the more conservative approach, arguably did get us out of the Great Depression quite early and quite successfully. And towards the end of the 30s, Menzies is a minister in a Lyons government that is losing its sense of direction, but he has one thing to hold on to, which is this concept of national insurance, which is this big landmark policy. This will be the new future of what the UAP stands for. It's based on contributory pensions and these sorts of things. So like a welfare state, but a welfare state that's a bit more like superannuation. You all pay into it and therefore it's healthily financed, just living off the largesse of the government and what other people have earned. And Menzies is really sold on this idea. But then at the behest of the country party, and it's always the country party, (laughs) who's Menzies' nemesis at this particular (laughs) point in time, the Lions government passes the legislation even. They pass the legislation, but then they gut it and say that we're only going to enact a small part of it and we'll have future debates about it. And Menzies, once again, he resigns in disgust. Yes, the country party is the gift that just doesn't keep on giving for Menzies, isn't it? So Menzies resigns and then Joe Lyons, unfortunately, dies in office in 1939 before the war has begun. But Menzies takes over from Lyons, doesn't he, as leader of the UAP and Prime Minister of Australia, which is something that Joe Lyons's wife, Enid, never ever quite forgives Menzies for. She sees him as potentially through the resignation over this matter of principle, really, about the national insurance issue. She sees Menzies as contributing to Joe Lyons' stress and his ultimate death, which a tricky legacy to carry, but probably quite unfair on reflection. So Menzies is the Prime Minister who takes us into World War II. He's leader of the UAP in coalition with the Country Party. But like what happened in World War I, the government has to be entirely focused on winning the war. And so a politics of principle and a commitment to the policy issues that are underpinned by those principles really goes out the window once again. Yeah, so Menzies has a really difficult time in the early period of World War II for Australia because a lot of the Australian public don't quite buy into the seriousness of the situation. It's still very much seen as a distant war. There's a real reluctance to go in it. There's a lot of shell shock. These are people who really believed in appeasement and the reason that they believed in appeasement because it was absolutely unfathomable that you could go into another global conflict after having already experienced one. is absolutely unfathomable. And Menzies has to deal with great strikes throughout his time, all these pushback against any introduction of pastoral rationing, all these people who really drag their feet, who don't want to really accept that Australia is at war. But then you have really momentous events like the fall of France and these sorts of things that make it very clear how real a war this is. And that at a certain stage, it's basically the British Commonwealth versus Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and all of the axis lined up against Britain standing by itself. And Menzies lays so much of the groundwork for Australia's success in this particular period of time, but he never gets much credit for it because a lot of it has this momentous time lag that when you're establishing these arms factories or factories that can build planes, all these sorts of things, It takes months and months to actually get the thing built, but then once it's built, it's churning out constantly and it's upping and upping production. So all these things, productive factors that go through the roof under Menzies' successor curtain, we're all from factories and things that were set up during Menzies' time. Yeah, yeah. Menzies as Prime Minister goes to London, the US, Canada and other places for months And, I mean, it's hard to imagine these days a Prime Minister being away for months and months. 
let alone during a period of national crisis when the country's at war. So his wife, Dame Patty, at the time had warned him that you can go away, but there'll be significant political trouble when you come back and you'll be knifed within six weeks, I think she even said to him. And actually, that was exactly the case. He lost the support of some key independents who were supporting his government and the country party uh, support started to fade away and Menzies resigns in 1941. And as you say, Curtin then becomes the wartime prime minister that we all sort of know more commonly as the wartime prime minister and, and he's definitely considered a Labor hero for his contribution to the war effort during that period and, and rightly so. But a lot of the groundwork was set up in those first two years of the war under Menzies. But Menzies doesn't waste his time, does he, in, in now opposition and on the back bench. This is actually one of the most important periods of Menzies' life. Yes, certainly. So he delivers this series of radio broadcasts called The Forgotten People. The title broadcast, which is actually the 20th in the series, is really famous and really outlines a lot of the ideological and philosophical foundations of the Liberal Party. But it's interesting that Menzies initially starts these radio broadcasts not to talk about politics necessarily. He starts them because he is this recently resigned war leader and people want to know what such an important person who's been in the war cabinet with Churchill for so many important meetings What does he think about what's going on in the war on this everyday basis? And people start listening. They're really intrigued by this. It gets massive ratings. It's early episodes of several of them are reported in the New York Times. They're talked about in both houses of British politics. And it's only on the back of all that that Menzies gets reinvigorated. He gets excited again. And one day he's reading the paper and there's this class warfare tract from a particular bishop that he doesn't like and it really triggers him. And then all of a sudden he goes off and writes The Forgotten People. And it's a real shift in the whole focus of these broadcasts and it is a real shift in Menzies' entire life. I think it's where he gets his passion for the political game again. Yeah, and it's when he's real low point of his career. I mean, he's been prime minister, but only for two years. He's resigned from that position. He contemplates at that time leaving politics entirely and going back to the bar or going off. I mean, there's rumours he was considering going off to the UK to be ambassador. I mean, who knows? But you know, it's a sliding doors moment and he decides to stick at it. And of course, these forgotten people broadcasts we still talk about to this day, they really set up the key principles and ideas and values of what will become in a few years after this, the Liberal Party of Australia. I think it's worth discussing what he's talking about in these broadcasts. And there are not just the 37 that were published in a book in 1943. There are actually 105, isn't that right, of these broadcasts. So he's doing this for a couple of years. It's primetime radio, Friday night, 9.15pm. He's addressing all sorts of issues, but they're all coloured and characterised by a set of really important ideas that still resonate to this day. Yes, Menzies is speaking at a time of a crisis of Western democracy. And it's been a long-running crisis. It doesn't start with 1939. It starts with the Great Depression and only gets worse through the 30s as the alternates that are proposed to democratic capitalism, communism and fascism as they take hold around the world. And there is this real need to argue for individual freedom, for liberty, but within a framework of a society that will work. It's not, Menzies isn't about laissez-faire capitalism. He's about the broader picture of how do you have a successful society? And he believes that a successful society is fundamentally driven by freedom. It's driven by individual initiative. He thinks one of the worst aspects of socialism is that it would be stultifying, that in a nation of public servants, there would be no new ideas, there would be no great art. He really respects the public service in their role that they play in the Australian state, but he never saw them as innovators. They were the antithesis of progress. The state is the antithesis of progress. And it's interesting when Menzies later says that the Liberals were meant to be a progressive party. It's progress for him was about giving individuals the chance and the freedom to succeed, that you didn't want stagnant waters go rotten. You wanted vigorous waters. They run clear and they really create a more successful nation. 
And one of the very important emphases of the Forgotten People broadcast was who he was pitching it to and who he was talking about. I mean, the Forgotten People. And it's been recast as Tony's Tradies and Howard Battlers and Scott Morrison's Quiet Australians and each leader of the Liberal Party as generations go on has their own idea of who these people are. But for Menzies, these were the middle class. I mean, Menzies inheriting that deep tradition and long tradition of Australian liberalism was anti-class warfare. He did not see that as having a place in Australian society and if it was in Australian society, it wasn't a good thing. So he was anti-class warfare, but if he had to talk about a class, it was going to be these middle class who were not part of organised labour like the trade unions and they were not part of big business who might have power through vested interest or lobbying capacities. And I really like this quote, which I often read out. It is a quintessential Menzies middle class characterization here that he says, I do not believe that the real life of this nation is to be found either in great luxury hotels and the petty gossip of so-called fashionable suburbs or in the officialdom of organized masses. It is to be found in the homes of people who are nameless and unadvertised and who, whatever their individual religious conviction or dogma, see in their children their greatest contribution to the immortality of their race. It's a great quote. Think what Menzies is doing in The Forgotten People. You say that he absolutely rejects class warfare, and he does. He thinks this is an anathema to talk about class in Australian politics, but he does what in high school debating we call the even if (laughs) technique. So even if I accept your premise, then I can enter into these arguments that I couldn't without vaguely accepting your premise that I don't agree with. But he goes on to talk about how important the middle class is. But in that particular quote, He's broadened the middle class to incorporate just about everyone. These are universal values. They might be associated with the middle class. They might have their roots in maybe Protestant values and his background in Presbyterianism. But Menzies' great skill is to make them universal. You take home ownership, it's so pivotal. Well, then make sure 73% of the population own their own homes by the time you retire in 1966. If you believe that (laughs) university education is fundamental to the health of society, that it's the sort of new church in a secular world, then triple the amount of people going to university. Make these middle-class values universal. The real key to his success. Yeah, and in the pivotal Forgotten People broadcast, he talks about homes material, human and spiritual. In that sense, as you say, they are these universal values. Everyone has some sort of a home. You have a a home in your material sense that is your aspiration. You own your own home, your human sense in that you have parents and siblings or relatives. And then this sort of spiritual idea that you're spiritually free, your independent spirit, you learn through education to think for yourself, to think critically. And these are essential to the flourishing of Australians, particularly this middle class. And of course, through the Menzies era, you then see this middle class getting bigger and bigger and bigger because this was the great Australian dream to be able to own your own home, have a family, be educated and make your way in the world through that and not be part of some kind of mass organised program. Yeah, again, it's tapping into something that existed in Australia, that we already had a very broad distribution of wealth. We already had upward social mobility. But then Menzies is taking these sort of 19th century ideals and reinvigorating them because maybe they had petered out during the Great Depression. Maybe there was a reason that people were seeking alternatives to liberal democracy. And Menzies' secret was to make liberal democracy work for the vast majority of Australians again. So Menzies has this series of radio broadcasts. In 1943, there's an election. The United Australian Party does contest that election. Labor's in power, of course. John Curtin is Prime Minister. Still in the middle to late stages of World War II. The UAP does abominably badly and collapses. So you really have, once again, this fracturing on the centre-right. Menzies is then part of a project to start a new political party, which will, of course, become the Liberal Party of Australia. One of those contested issues in history and Australian political history is 
who founded the Liberal Party of Australia. So there's a series of meetings and conferences, there's various centre-right groups who come together, 18 of them in total, to form the Liberal Party of Australia. But it's neat to say, oh, Robert Menzies founded the Liberal Party because it's just nice to have one person and you don't have to remember too many other names. (laughs) But it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it, Zach? Yes, I like the Ian Hancock line that Menzies was necessary to the founding of the Liberal Party, but he wasn't sufficient for the founding of the Liberal Party. So he was certainly a major driver. He's chairing a lot of these meetings. Through the Forgotten People broadcast, he has laid a lot of the intellectual foundation for the new Liberal Party. But he was certainly not the only person on the centre-right who had this idea that, you know what, we should found a new party and get rid of the old UAP and really start from scratch. There's all sorts of new parties being formed in this particular time period. You have a People's Party in Queensland. You have a Liberal Democratic Party founded in New South Wales. You have Services and Citizens Party founded in Victoria. So these ideas are there. But the thing about the centre-right is that it's like herding cats. These are people who value their independence fundamentally. One of the main philosophical differences between Liberal and Labour has always been that Liberal parliamentarians are not bound to caucus, are not bound to the faceless men of the external party. So you're trying to create this external party and have this enduring structure, then going to be powerless because it's not going to be able to dictate to MPs. So it's a really complex picture. But Menzies does become this great unifier with the help of a lot of other important people that should be mentioned, like Elizabeth Couchman of the Australian Women's National League. Menzies is necessary, but he's not sufficient. There are all these other side characters that are part of this essential journey. So these groups, including the Australian Women's National League and others, meet in Canberra for a unity conference and then finally in Albury for the conference that seals the deal of the Liberal Party of Australia. And Menzies, he would later say on reflection, you know, why did you call it Liberal Party? And I think our conversation up to now has pretty much made it clear why it is the Liberal Party, but it's worth reflecting on his own reflections of why they chose the name Liberal And he says, we took the name Liberal because we were determined to be a progressive party, willing to make experiments, in no sense reactionary, but believing in the individual, his rights and his enterprise, and rejecting the socialist panacea. Well, I think that speaks a lot to what had come before. So the Nationalists and the UAP, both at the end of their lifespans, there was nothing that united the members of the party other than they didn't want Labor to be in office. That's where that reactionary comes from. Reactionary is not necessarily a brand of conservatism or a clear political platform. It is having no original ideas, having no vision from the nation, other than stopping the Labor Party doing what they want to do. But at the same time, as Menzies has this sort of progressive and sort of real clear vision for the nation, but it's always important to stress the sort of nuance, the balancing act, that he wants there to be an important role for the state and he does want the nation to go forward, but he knows that real progress is ultimately the product of the individual and their enterprise and people motivated with healthy motivations. And that's one of the things about having a family and a home and a stake in society is that you have the right intentions, you have the right motivations, and they make you really want to contribute to the nation. So Menzies leads this new Liberal Party from 1944 and he contests the 1946 election and they fail. They don't win. And by this stage, it's Ben Chifley, who's Prime Minister. John Curtin has died in 1945. Ben Chifley has taken over and they fail. And I think that would have been a huge disappointment, but it is a very, very new political party. And it's pretty impressive to be able to win government from having been only stood up two years before. So they persevere. And look, Ben Chifley is probably the prime minister you want to campaign against, quite frankly. In 1949, this Liberal Party is led by Menzies is campaigning against a Chifley government that is doing and trying to do a whole range of really unpopular things that really feed into that socialist objective and the socialist identity that the government's going to be nationalising banks, there won't be commercial television, that choice and freedom will be diminished under a Chifley Labor government if it continues. 
Yeah, well, losing in 1946 is actually a pretty scary proposition because the United Australia Party had only ever lost one election. They only ever lost in 1943 and that was the end of them. That was the real problem for the centre-right is that it's easy to make, to create a party in the parliamentary sense that you reinvigorate the members you already have you establish a platform and do all this front of house stuff, but actually having an enduring organization that can survive defeats and pick itself up and feel like it has that sense of direction. That was the real task of the formation of the Liberal Party. And that's one of the important points Hancock makes is that it's by no means achieved after the Albury conference, because that's the skeleton the centre-right always had. It's when you then go and you fill out the individual branches and you really create that spider web of a federal structure that can endure. But one of the reasons the centre-right does survive this setback in a way that it doesn't survive other setbacks is it has a really clear vision of what it wants to do. It is fighting against Chifley's bank nationalisation. It is fighting against the referendums that seek to greatly expand the powers of the federal government. And you have a lot of returned servicemen. There's a reason that some of these new parties that were created in the vacuum before the Liberal Party were called Servicemen's Party. There was this whole wave of returned soldiers that had just went out and sacrificed everything to try to defend Australia. And the last thing they wanted to come back to was Australia going down the route of socialism and authoritarianism and things they felt that they had been fighting against in the war. So a lot of the MPs that actually win with Menzies in 1949 is this wave of the so-called 49ers, these young, really passionate ex-soldiers that all get elected in one fell swoop. And suddenly that older political class that had been sniping at Menzies behind his back when he was prime minister the first time and these sorts of things, they're sort of irrelevant now. There is this real fresh wave in Australian politics in 1949. Would have been an incredibly exciting time. Now, Menzies is, as you say, elected Prime Minister for the second time in 1949 and he's in that position until 1966, January 1966, when he decides to retire, time of his choosing. So he wins seven elections during that second period. I mean, quite extraordinary and leaves an incredible legacy that we still benefit from today. So he has a set of principles. His Liberal Party stands for a pretty clearly articulated set of ideas. But he uses those ideas to inform some really significant policies that I think are the secret to his success. The one that is still really important to this day is, of course, home ownership. And what Menzies does to home ownership, which he believes is essential to people having stability and success in life, that it gives them a little stake in the country, that they get that sense of patriotism and working hard for the country and wanting to defend the country. That is something that when he comes to office in 49, the home ownership rate and he's inheriting some policies of the previous Labor government that had not valued home ownership so much. They had been very much in favour of state-owned housing and people rent from the state. He says, no, 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 I want people to own their own homes. And they basically goes from around 50-odd percent to 70-odd percent by the time he retires in 1966. I mean, this is an incredible transformation through a series of policies that basically back the middle classes to buy their own homes. Yeah, so there's all sorts of elements that go into the rise in home ownership. But as far as what the government policy is actually doing, the first and foremost, it's ending wartime restrictions and really opening up the economy so supply can get a lot closer to demand. That in all these building materials, obviously land was a more available commodity back then than it is now. But building materials were actually really scarce in the early post-war period. So having this liberalised economy that could actually provide enough resources to get the job done, but then the state would do things like there was all this money earmarked for this federal state housing agreement that the federal government under Labor was giving to the state governments purely to build these giant commission housing blocks. But Menzies makes sure that a significant amount of that money is available just to be lent out to poorer potential homeowners. So you are giving people this stake. You're not creating permanent dependency. You are really facilitating people to stand on their own two feet and to build themselves up from there. 
And there's other sorts of schemes as far as helping young couples save for their own home. There's schemes where you help guarantee loans to, again, help people get their foot in the door. And a lot of these schemes, we have this same issue today. There are all sorts of sort of circumstantial differences as why they work then, but they sure did work then. (laughs) And I think that's the key is that the policies that Menzies was implementing, which are underpinned by his values, worked. And when it comes to free enterprise, another aspiration of Menzies is that Australia be a free enterprise economy, that it's not state central planning. He did, as you said before, see a role for the state, but it was a civilising role for the state rather than a, a way of the state planning all aspects of the economy. His policies that really enabled free enterprise to flourish in Australia, you know, getting rid of the wartime controls and petrol rationing and ending the ban on mineral exports. I mean, this all happened during Menzies' time. You have, through that time, wages going up, inflation being kept low, people experiencing increasing levels of disposable income, unemployment at incredibly low levels. And I always enjoy quoting the statistic in South Australia in one year during the Menzies era, there were three people who were unemployed. I mean, (laughs) it was low (laughs) anyway. But as Henry Ergas, Australian economist, has said, this Menzies era was the golden age of economic growth. They were good times. People were able to buy their own homes and they had a job and they were doing well. Yeah, you're re-establishing Australia as a place where it is an anathema to think about socialism because there is so much wealth and wealth is so widely distributed. These alternate plans just seem insane. Everything is so successful. At a certain point in early 70s, that becomes a bit difficult that you do need a certain level of economic reform. But no, for the time period, the amount of economic freedom Menzies was offering was more than sufficient for this great boom in the Australian economy, the likes of which we haven't seen since. And I know that people will point to the fact that this is a time of prosperity across the West, that we are not the only people that experience a post-war boom. But I think some of the lasting changes that we're able to get out of that is different to other countries. That Menzies really capitalises on it with the things like home ownership, which always stays high in Australia since it got that high. In Menzies, it's still higher than the rest of the world. Whereas in America, you might have had this post-war boom, but since then you've had a far greater hollowing out of the middle class. It doesn't seem to have been as permanent as the prosperity. And I think part of that is because it was always so widespread and so sort of deeply entrenched in Australia. The final policy I'd like to discuss with you, Zach, is Menzies' education revolution. He was, from a young age, passionate about the transformative power of education. He had experienced that himself from humble beginnings, studying hard, winning scholarships. It was able to go to law school, to the bar, a KC, and then into politics because he was able to educate himself and think critically and independently. He saw that as fundamental to the flourishing of a liberal democracy, that we have an educated nation. And he didn't just talk about it, he made it happen through his reforms to federal funding for universities and the introduction of Commonwealth scholarships, which enabled thousands upon thousands of Australian young people to go to university when they otherwise would not have had the means. I think you mentioned it earlier on, always reflect on the extraordinary tripling of the number of students who were able to go to university during the Menzies era and the almost doubling of the number of universities in this country. He was Prime Minister for a long time, but still that's a pretty quick period of time in which those changes took place. Well, yeah, this is what it means when you're determined to be a progressive party. You're determined to have a vision for the state. It's not enough to just oppose socialism and just not want the other mob to do what they want to do. You have to have an alternate vision. And that Menzies had a clear alternate vision and a real cornerstone of that was education. It is a lifelong passion. We're sitting now in the University of Melbourne. Menzies obviously had a real passion for the University of Melbourne such that he spent his retirement as chancellor and ultimately donated his personal books collection here. But even on a sort of intellectual level, Menzies in the 1930s is doing all sorts of addresses on the role of education in society, why it's important, how we should bring it forward. 
He's got books in his collection where he's reading on these sorts of things. He's deeply passionate about this issue in a way that I really don't see many modern politicians being about the issues that they talk about. They seem too caught up in what will win them votes at a given election. But the Murray Report, which is the foundation stone of all these great changes to the Australian tertiary education system, that's not done as a vote-winning exercise. If anything, it's something that Menzies has the luxury to do in the late 50s after the Great Labor Party gives him real security in office. He's not really thinking about just the short-term election cycle. He's thinking about what can I do to make Australia better and to make Australia fit into this grand vision that I have for Australia. So Menzies' Liberal Party federally has been the most successful political party in Australia's history. And of course, the Menzies era of that history is he's the longest serving prime minister. There's something about this party and Menzies that have made it enduring and successful. It was the right formula too, as opposed to the UAP and the nationalists and the free traders and the protectionists. It has the right formula that has made it an enduring success. Why do you think that is? Well, there was a lot of talk when they created the Liberal Party that they wanted it to be permanent. That is where the actual title of Ian Hancock's organisational history, the Liberal Party, comes from. It's national and permanent, that they wanted something that would endure because they were so sick of political parties that only really lasted a decade. But I think one of the real reasons for an enduring success of the Liberal Party is that it it has a really solid philosophical foundation in the values of Australian liberalism and philosophical foundation taps into the Australian zeitgeist, that Australian liberalism is so intimately connected to the history of the country that if you espouse these values and articulate them well, then that will be electorally successful. I think that one of the issues today with the modern Liberal Party is that you need to go back to that font of our history and our core values, that the Liberal Party is too often divorced from its own history and divorced from Australian history because it's too in the moment, in the now, what we can do for the next election. There's not this broader sense of a long-term view. And Menzies had a long-term view both when he sought to found the Liberal Party and then had a long-term view in what he wanted to enact via the Liberal Party. And it's taking that longer-term view, I think, that is the real secret to the success of the Liberal Party. Well, thank you very much, Zach Gorman, for this discussion on the founding of the Liberal Party of Australia. I think it's a fascinating topic, always deserves more reflection and discussion, and it's been a good one today. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. Please make sure to subscribe and catch up on our latest online content on our website or on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.